How do we do that? Oh, I'll think of something. You're just making this up as you go along. Yep. But I do it brilliantly. Stripe suit. Or blue suit. A bevy of companions. And, oh no, the talking dog too. He launched the show to new heights. And became one of the most beloved doctors of all of time and space. Shannon Sutterth helps us discuss the 10th Doctor. On the April 10th, see what we did there, edition of This Week in Time Travel. Why are you shaking your head at me? Because I didn't realize that the date was a pun, and you just made me realize that. And I don't know whether to feel proud or ashamed, because we didn't even plan that. Welcome, everybody, to This Week in Time Travel. Hi. (laughs) We're starting off on a great note. Aren't we, though? Lurking in the background with us until we get started (laughs) talking about the 10th Doctor is my spouse, a former guest commenter on the former Two Minute Time Lord podcast, Shannon Sutterth. Hi, everybody. Hey, Shannon. And the best puns are the unplanned ones. This is true. We were trying to figure out who was going to be the best person to join us for dissecting the 10th Doctor, and Alyssa reminded me that I'm married to a very strong 10th Doctor fan. So I know this was a great difficulty for you, Shannon, in being able to be on this podcast. You know, it's just, it, it it's, it's such a thing to get you both in the same house at the same time together to do it, but we appreciate the effort that you've put in to be here. <laughs> yes, my pleasure. <laughs> but before we get into matters of, what was Donna's phrase? Skinny boys in tight suits? Let's look over the news of the last week, including the formal announcement that somebody on this podcast has a book coming out. Yes. Hi, it me. Technically, I could have shared this news a lot earlier, but anxiety told me that if I told anyone about this news before I had actually turned in the final book, I wouldn't turn in the final book, and therefore it wouldn't happen at all. So uh, on the back of that incredibly straightforward and reasonable logic, I can finally tell everybody on this podcast that, yes, I wrote a book. It's coming out under the Black Archive Press. They do a series of critical analyses into individual stories of Dr. Doctor Who. And over the summer, there will be a series exploring the final three episodes of Series 9, Face the Raven, Heaven Sent, and Hellbent. I will be doing an analysis of Hellbent. It will be coming out in August. And I will drop in uh, links in the show notes in future episodes to where you can pre-order and then eventually purchase the book. So uh, it will not be available for pre-order for a little while longer now as they finalize all of the details details, but I'm very happy and proud and relieved to have done it. You survived. You survived I writing survived the book. I survived this. Oh, my God. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Writing a book is really scary, guys. It's very, very scary. <laughs> <laughs> I was just very happy to read on your Facebook wall. You referred to it as your first book. I like that word, first Hopefully the first of many, except not for a little while, because I think I need to take some time out to breathe after doing the first one. (laughs) Speaking of written matter, we've got some new comic books coming out. Entertainment Weekly had an exclusive reveal with the covers 
of a new comic book miniseries called The Road to the 13th Doctor. Oddly enough, The Road to the 13th Doctor is paved with the 10th Doctor, the 11th Doctor, and the 12th Doctor. We've got individual comics about the Doctors leading up to Jodie Whittaker's uh, debut. And there's also going to be a short story involved in all three of these issues leading up to the 13th Doctor's debut, uh, written and illustrated, I believe, as well, by the 13th Doctor's upcoming comics creative team of uh, Jody Hauser and our own Rachel Stott. Yes, and I'm very interested to see how this goes, uh, because as far as I can tell, this might be the first time in which a story is told about the Doctor before they officially premiere on the TV show. So is this going to be like an in-depth story? I'm not entirely sure. What level of short story is this? Are they going to be like, you know, glimpses of the 13th Doctor in the middle of these other Doctor's stories? That wasn't entirely clear to me from the announcement. So I'm really curious to see how this all fits together. It's a little strange to me, and yet it's kind of compelling. And it, I think that it sort of fits into a pattern I'm seeing with the BBC's marketing and promotion of Doctor Who leading up to the next series. Go back to the like the Tom Baker Blu-ray collection that's just been announced and the trade dress for all kinds of Doctor Who merchandise that's coming up. The brand new, very distinctive Doctor Who logo that was rolled out for Series 11 uh, for Jodie Whittaker's Doctor is everywhere. And I think that the BBC is being very, very intentional about tying the 13th Doctor to the broader history of Doctor Who. I think that with leading up to her story with her predecessors, to using the new logo on everything, I think that they are being kind of in your face to fandom that... The 13th Doctor, Jodie Whittaker, is the same Doctor as the 4th Doctor, Tom Baker. Same logo and everything. They are not going to let fanboys who are resistant to the idea of a female Doctor or who might be tempted to think of this as some sort of weird spinoff of Doctor Who because there's a woman flying the TARDIS. I think that they are making some very, very careful and intentional efforts to connect Jodie Whittaker and the 13th Doctor to everything that's come before. Yeah, the branding is definitely, I think, more from a marketing perspective of you want the brand on everything because you want to really tie everything in all together. Um, so I think that's more of a marketing PR thing than anything else. But it is nice to see um, such a deliberate effort in particularly comic series and everything else uh, to do it. You know, it is kind of in a little way disappointing because all previous things that came before allowed for the creators to say this is brand new, clean break, you know. Know, you, for goodness sake, you have the 2005 series starting off with, and we killed all the Time Lords. Okay, bye. <laughs> so you don't really get that kind of leeway right now because you, at the moment, have to really establish that this is Doctor Who, that this is a continuation of the ongoing series because it's going to be too easy for people to try to say, nope, not part of it. And that's been a grand tradition of Doctor Who fans to come up to something that they don't like and go, nope, not part of my Doctor Who. And I get that. To a certain degree, you know, everyone, it's a 
50-plus-year-old show, everyone's got times that they do and do not like and things they you know really want to spend their time on and things they don't. But we know where a lot of the opposition to this new doctor comes from. I don't need to harp on it. Um, and you know, I think they're making a very deliberate effort to say, this is Doctor Who, and like it or hate it because of the stories, you're not going to say that just because she's a woman, it's not a part of this. So that's right. appreciated. Right. Absolutely. The classic logo does adorn the Day of the Doctor novel that Stephen Moffat wrote. And now that it's out, Radio Times and other outlets have been highlighting that there's a lot of continuity um, indulgence in Stephen Moffat's novel, where he took some time to clear up some continuity misconceptions and create some new <laughs> new continuity <laughs> mis- messes all along the way. Yeah, this is basically Moffat's opportunity to just do whatever he wanted with the book from just silly to wonderful to completely out there bonkers. It ranges from describing the first two doctors as colorblind and explaining why those eras of Doctor Who were in black and white to basically making the Peter Cushing Doctor Who and the Daleks film actual part of canon by explaining that it was a doctor authorized movie about his life and like actually bringing in some details about how Peter Cushing was doctor approved and that the doctor brought him forward in time to be able to appear in Rogue One um, after his death. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening there (laughs) that is frankly ridiculous and delightful. And I just want to see the fan fiction of Susan convincing the first doctor to authorize a movie into his life because you know, you know, it wasn't the first doctor who did this. You know, it was that beautiful fangirl Susan sitting there and going, grandfather, you are going to authorize this man to do this. And by the way, I'm going to sit in a theater and watch all of the Star Wars films, and we're going to bring Peter Cushing up so he can reprise his role in Rogue One. Like, you know that happened. So does that mean that every sighting of the TARDIS or the first Doctor in human history was attributed to Peter Cushing cosplayers? Oh, my God. Yes, That's theory accepted, headcanon confirmed. I'm running with that. (laughs) I win. I win. (laughs) Oh, and finally, Silver Screen Records has released more details about the Series 9 soundtrack, which is due April 27th. Four discs, including two individual discs with complete scores for The Husbands of River Song and... I'm sorry, special highlight for the complete score for Heaven Sent. We have been waiting four and a half billion years for this. Okay, but okay, it's settle finally down. finally come out, and I'm very excited about it because I really love the music. Hopefully we won't have to wait this long for the Series 10 soundtrack. Mm-hmm. All right, that's the news that happened in this week in time travel. When we come back from this brief little reminder that's coming up, Shannon jumps in and we talk all about David Tennant and we talk all about the 10th Doctor. But first... We've got one more reminder that it's Pledge Month for all the shows on the Incomparable Network. If you support any of our shows, including This Week in Time Travel, you'll get some exclusive goodies, including our special crossover podcast with Erica Ensign, Stephen Schapansky, and Jason Snell. We're recording it this Tuesday. 
Just go to theincomparable.com slash members to sign up and check the boxes for any shows you want to support, including This Week in Time Travel. Thank you for listening, and thanks for considering supporting us. It feels weird to have to do an introduction to the 10th Doctor because it feels like for so many people, the 10th Doctor was their introduction into Doctor Who. And yet I go home and I go visit my baby cousin. And for her, the first Doctor was Matt Smith. That's who she grew up watching for the very first time. And uh, this is a moment where even, you know, at 26 years old, I feel old because there's all of these little babies coming up who did not know anything about David Tennant. And I just want to bring them all in and go, let me introduce you to the doctor. So we're going to do a little bit of this. Bring in your kids, let them hear about it. And let's actually talk about what makes the 10th doctor so great. And uh, Chippy wrote down a very interesting description here uh, for the 10th Doctor. You asked, when did Doctor Who become geek chic? And that was with David Tennant. I think so, but I am a well-known 10th Doctor partisan, so... Um, I think we need to get somebody, you know, independent and non-biased and non, you know, have have no opinion on the subject to weigh in on this. <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I I did start watching Doctor Who back uh, when it came back. Chip was excited that it was coming back. I had never been into Doctor Who growing up. He had, and he was like, "It's coming back! It's coming back! Watch with me." And I watched, and yeah, this is this is kind of fun. This is cute. Uh, I like this. And then we hit the end of season one, and uh, Chris Freckleston regenerates into David Tennant. And I sit up and take notice because, damn, he's cute. <laughs> um, I, totally shallow about that. Totally shallow about that. Um, I had only the vaguest in- inkling of who David Tennant was. This was also around the same time that he had his um, role in the Harry Potter movies, which was my fandom at the time. So I knew who he was, uh, didn't know much about him, and was you know very interested to see what was going to happen uh, as we started watching. And I you know start watching ser- series two and uh, just totally and utterly, completely fell in love with David Tennant as the Doctor. Uh, head over heels. So ratings didn't really blow up uh, internationally, especially until Smith came along. And that's when, uh, you know, everyone, BBC America, BBC, get everything in line Mm -hmm. and start airing the episodes simultaneously. But we often associate Tennant with being the explosion of the Doctor Who fandom for the first time. You know, that first initial big jump in bringing in a lot of new people, of not just having people who remembered and liked Doctor Who coming in um, for Eccleston, but really going, yes, I want to be here for Tenet, bringing new people in. So what do you think really kind of grabbed people new about David Tennant? I think part of it was that Tennant was known for other things that were in like sort of that generation of fandom, you know, the Harry Potter movies. Um, he and RTD had done this, you know, funny thing with Casanova that had gotten a lot of attention. So I think that was a bit of it. And the fact that just, you know, right away, 
with those first few episodes with him and Billy Piper, they just brought a level of joy and pleasure in each other's company that had begun in the previous series. We, we see Rose getting to know the Doctor through Christopher Eccleston, learning about him and learning about what this life can be like. And then, you know, we go along, those of us who are already watching go along with her into this shock of regeneration. For those of us who started watching the new series, this was the first time the Doctor regenerated. And so, you know, it's a big change, even though because Eccleston's departure had been announced early on, at least people knew to expect it. But I think they just, Russell T. Davies just found this combination of energy from the two actors, from the first few scripts of just the idea that with the regeneration, the doctor's strongest period of mourning post-time war had let him sort of capture the joy of his adventuring again. And it really seemed to erupt between the two of them. And I think that grabbed a lot of people. And the fact that, of course, you know, fandom wise, um, you know, that's, you know, like, you know, the fanfic started exploding and the fan art because people were like, you know, hey, these two are cute. These two are obviously enjoying each other's company. And for some of us, yeah, we, we think they're falling for each other. So we're going to run with it. So I do want to dig into that a little bit because it's definitely one of the more controversial aspects of fandom at the time that people really <laughs> started watching Doctor Who because the Doctor was a cute young man and was with a cute young female companion uh, and they seemed compatible, that they seemed like mm -hmm. they uh, were enjoying each other's company and that they were very easily shippable because they were at that mm -hmm. point in their relationship where they were both just sort of on the cusp of about to acknowledge what was happening there, but mm -hmm. not quite managing it several times, which is excellent fan fiction fodder. Mm -hmm. But it's used to sort of be derisive sometimes towards the women who came into fandom at the time, as if the only reason that we were there was for gazing at David Tennant, which this is more of an editorial rather than a question. I apologize. Is this, a, is this more of a comment than a question, Alyssa? <laughs> it's more than, oh God, I have become the thing I hate. <laughs> oh, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways, because if the men can do it, I can do it too. But it's one of those things where you get people very unapologetically talking about the use of the companions in uh, the classic series. You have John Nathan Turner straight up saying that he uh, got attractive young women to play the companions and dress them in skimpy clothes because they were there to bring the dads in after football had finished for the day and they wanted to get those viewers to stay and keep watching the show. So they were very unapologetic about using the male gaze on the female companions to keep viewers in. Uh, and yet there is so much uh, kind of derision of the female gaze and the fact that people wanted to keep watching not just for the stories and for the characters uh, and for the wonderful science fiction elements of it, um, but also because the actors were cute and we liked looking at them. I mean, if you want your show to stay alive, if you want your show to grow in the ratings, you gotta go for audiences that you maybe haven't gone for before. 
I mean, you know, that that it, it kills me sometimes when this happens. And it's not just Doctor Who. There's other fandoms that it's happened to here and there. You know, if you want your major film franchise to rock the top of the box office, you can't rely on the same small core group of dedicated fans to go 200 times. No, you've got to get 200 more people to come and then drag their friends and bring 200 more in. And that was one of the things that I think especially Tenant's era of Doctor Who accomplished is that it got the attention of younger fans. It got the attention of female fans who had not paid attention to this franchise before. Um, and yes, some fans, uh, you know, left again after Tennant left because they followed him, the actor, more than they followed the show. Some fans stayed. You know, lots of fans stayed. As you said, the, the ratings kept going up with Matt Smith. You know, Tennant's run started something that I think just got exponentially bigger, as you said, once uh, BBC America and the worldwide networks got things lined up so people weren't having to, like, run after trucks to, to see the episode right away. So, you know, why are you fussing people? Let <laughs> right. us have our fun. <laughs> And you're right, young women did stay and keep watching the show. Uh, and the most amusing thing for me was uh, the day after Peter Capaldi was cast, I saw a lot of men saying, oh, well, it's an older guy and all the women are going to stop watching it. And I'm looking over at my other side of Twitter and like all of the girls were talking about, wow, Peter Capaldi's actually really cute. So gr girls are going to find yeah. whoever they want to find attractive. So sorry, yeah. boys, we're here for the science fiction. Uh, we're here for... Uh, these stories and we're also here to stare at men it's okay <laughs> <laughs> you know uh david Tennant and the 10th doctor as the 10th doctor reaches the top of various polls like digital spy did one a couple of years ago and things like that uh favorite doctor or even favorite television character of a certain period of time but he is controversial i've got friends on other podcasts who just can't stand the 10th doctor who thought that the whole Tin and Rose dynamic was either creepy or unbearably smug and breathed a sigh of relief when um, Tennant and Russell T. Davis rode off into the sunset and, quote, a real Doctor Who fan with a real alien doctor who was really going to leave all this romance stuff behind finally uh, took the, finally took the stage. Which it didn't exactly turn out that way. Uh, I'm wondering <laughs> what it was about the Tenth Doctor that made him so beloved in some corners and hated in others. I'm not sure. Jealousy of success? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's don't. our impartial panelist over there. <laughs> I seriously don't know. Um, I mean, as I have seen other... Here and there, other doctors, other eras, other stories. Um, I feel like Tennant's Doctor fits in perfectly in so many ways with the concept of the general character. There are times when he is just loving his adventures. He is, you know, happy. He is indulging whichever companion that he's with and living his life. And then there are times when he sees wrong happening and he turns into the oncoming storm and he is going to fix this and it's not going to be pretty and he's going to be merciless. You know, David Tennant came into the role 
as a major fan of the show. And he, I think, infused his choices, um, thinking about across the different eras, you know, and the only thing that I can see that irritated um, some some of these opposing uh, fans so much is because, you know, because they just didn't like the dynamic between him and Rose. And it's like that was only one season, you know, that got kind of ripped away from it. And yes, she infused her presence, infused the other two seasons a lot, but it didn't stop his character from growing and moving on. I can see some of the complaints, but I think it largely comes down to personal taste of yeah. how you react to the actors. Because when you look at just the, the structure of the stories and the lines that are spoken, I have a really hard time seeing the 10th uh, Doctor as being any more smug or condescending than any of the other Doctors. You know, he's about average um, in terms of that. Uh, he is... Uh, Definitely not the most modest of all of the doctors. Um, but when you put him up against the sixth doctor, gosh, he just seems downright <laughs> humble. So, you know, for me, I think it's how people respond to the particular type of smugness that Tennant brought to the role. And that's not a attack or criticism on either Tennant or the people that reacted to him. Some people like the way some people carry their smugness better than others. Um, and it's just sort of a, a personal reaction to those types of people. Um, but I think there is also some story choices that, you know, definitely did for some people go a little bit too far. You know, I think RTD and Moffat both played with the idea of, you know, the doctor as God um, and how people react to the level of power and authority that the doctor has and really sort of wrestling with what does a figure who has done all the things that the doctor has done over the tenure of his show look like in the universe and some people like the way Moffat tells those stories better than RTD. Some people the other way around. You know, I think um, particularly of the end of series three, you know, where Martha walks the earth and everyone on earth is thinking mm -hmm. of the doctor's name at the right point, And he basically turns into Jesus. Like, it's not subtle. He, you know, regenerates very, very rejuvenates, I guess is probably more accurate because yeah. he doesn't actually regenerate. That means something in this fandom. Anyways, and arms outstretched coming off off of a cross-like figure, like, he's basically the most Jesus that you can possibly get in that moment. And some of that kind of turns some people off. I'll admit that's definitely not one of my favorite stories uh, of his tenure. Um, but I think Moffat and RTD both do actually remarkably similar types of stories, but they take um, subtle but important differences in perspective when approaching it. Um, and it basically comes down to whether you think that resonates with you or not. And I've actually seen people argue the exact same points in completely other directions. Um, I have seen people say that RTD made uh, the 10th Doctor too om omnipotent, too powerful, too godlike, and people turn around and say the exact same thing, except Moffat <laughs> did that with Matt Smith. So so there, it, 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 it comes down very much to how people just perceive and react to those differences. Yeah. There is one unique thing, I think, about the Tenth Doctor, and I think it does come out in the scripts as well as in David Tennant's performance. And he's got incredible attachment issues. Uh, now, <laughs> yes. this does come up again for the... 11th Doctor with Amy in Angels Take Manhattan, and for the 12th Doctor and Clara uh, towards the end of uh, Series 9. But so, so it's not, it's not unique to the 10th Doctor, but 
The Tenth Doctor is a character who just can't let go, who wants is, to have it all. Well, this is, as far as I can remember, the one era where basically you get the entire Scooby and the gang. Stolen Earth Journey's End brings back every character that the Tenth Doctor has been interacting with so far to help uh, save the Earth that time. So, yeah, th- this is, you know... I would say the doctor that is most entwined with the humanity and the people around him that he's gotten to know and takes care of. Mm-hmm. He tries to take care of everybody in one way or the other. And, you know, survival is the most important thing, even to the point of, you know, taking away Donna's memory because he would rather have her alive and happy after a fact than, you know, dead at the end of a pivotal Uh, event in her life that's going to kill her. I get sort of torn on how to discuss these because for me, it doesn't come down so much to a character choice on the fact of the doctors, I don't think. I think it largely comes down to the attempt of the writers to try to create ever greater stakes without Mm -hmm. really committing and following through on... right what really needs to happen to create those stakes. So you have a lot of almost deaths of the companions, Mm -hmm. um, but neither Moffat nor RTD really wants to follow through. RTD is very willing to kill off one-off characters and one-off companions, but he's not really willing to do that for the recurring companions that really stick mm-hmm. with the Doctor. Um, so you have all of that buildup about this is the day Rose dies, and it's actually the day that she sort of just gets pushed off into the alternate universe. Mm-hmm. Um, you have... Donna being the sort of prophesized companion who is going to die at the end of this adventure. And it's a sort of death and it ends up with, I think, a much worse scene than just letting Donna die um, Mm -hmm. of having her uh, mentally violated uh, against her consent to have those memories removed. Um, So I think a little of that is um, RTD trying to walk the tightrope of family show. You know what? Reading the writers. uh, What's the what's the book called? The. The writer's, the writer's tale. The writer's yes. tale. He he. The way he describes it is he he wants to have that sort of moment, and it, it's not so much family considerations, but that he just can't can't follow through on it. He just doesn't want to kill Donna. So, Fair. I, and you know, there definitely could have been things going on behind the scenes of that book that were not shared. Of it's a family show, um, but. Uh, what was that story? He had, there was a funny story that he was telling, uh, Peter Davison, his kids were very young at the time and Davison reached out to RTD and was like, you know, is one of the companions seriously going to die? Because if they do, I want to prepare my kids for that. And RTD was like, you killed Adric. So like, (laughs) this may be a family show, but they do kill people every so often. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, but like you said, not as often in the modern era, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things of I think that's another thing that people sort of react differently to about the the doctor's pathos. Um, you know, Tennant is very good uh, and seems to enjoy doing those dramatic, angry, sad moments. Um, and for some people, you know, it's meaning and moving, but for some people, it's overwrought. Um, which I don't entirely agree with. I think for me, it mostly comes down to a story choice of, you know, how, how do they set it up so the companion is maybe almost not going to die? And what kind of other, even more horrific traumas will they put the companion through on the way there? Yeah. The uh, the 10th Doctor, he's 
smug and he regards himself fairly highly, but he also is one of the most flawed doctors and he wears those flaws on his sleeve uh, when we get all the way up to the waters of Mars where he uh, I think Russell T. Davis just can't help himself. He, he he has his heroic characters, but he's very suspicious of heroism and is going to do some things to subvert his own product uh, as, as he goes and call into question, you know, the innate goodness of the doctor, et cetera, and so on. Yeah, and I think some of this is just, you know, things, character development that RTD had the space to do with Tennant that he didn't get the space to do with Eccleston. I would be curious... I would be curious to know in that alternate universe where Eccleston stayed for, you know, two or three series, what sorts of aspects that we see in Tenet might Eccleston have developed uh, just for character development purposes? That's a good question, because David Tennant and the Tenth Doctor are much more accessible and much less forbidding than Eccleston and the Ninth Doctor. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is part of the reason why fandom as they came to discover re- or rediscover Doctor Who gravitated toward Tennant. I mean, he's got his faults, but he's pleasant to look at and he is amiable and funny and you forgive a lot when you just mm-hmm. like the person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a very approachable doctor and I think the series th- uh, that he's in do a lot to humanize him in a way and and not just in the sense that they, you know, make him less alien or make him easier for the audience, but that you really try to get a sense of who this person is, why they tick, but also trying to make them work better with the people that they surround themselves with. You have School Reunion, which is still to this day one of my favorite episodes, uh, where you sort of confront some of the choices that were made in the Classic Who series of the Doctor essentially just sort of abandoned Sarah Jane without so much of another word to her. And you really get to see the consequences of that for her, that, you know, partly she's hung up on this incredible life that she has and, you know, life on Earth sort of pales in comparison to that, but that she genuinely wondered for a while whether or not he was dead because he never came back to say so much as a word to her and how awful that must be. And, you know, I think seeing her talk with Rose and really get to the heart of what is it like to be, you know, a human traveling with this alien and making the doctor confront his past choices of, you know, maybe this felt like the easiest thing for you at the time. Maybe this still somewhat feels like the path that you want to take, but consider the consequences of your actions on the people around you. Um, you know, it's it's letting him be alien, but also making him confront the consequences of his choices, which not a lot of uh, the series does there's a lot of consequences of his choices in big like world ending battle kinds of ways but less so on the fact that his failure and sometimes disinterest in trying to understand how humans operate how his friends think and feel about the things that they're going through 
what those consequences are for the people that he purports to care and love about so deeply. So I think that's one of the successful things about his tenure is that he still gets to be a little alien, a little removed, but he doesn't just get to walk away from his choices quite as easily as he does in previous seasons. And it's definitely not executed perfectly every time. And he still gets away with quite a lot. But I think it does more than in the past to really confront what that means. Right. And with both of the succeeding doctors, there was an effort at the start to make them more alien, make them more removed, make them more distant uh, as a contrast to the 10th doctor. And it never stuck. It just never stuck. (laughs) Matt Smith bonkers but emotional gets married to river song gets you know gets gets tied up with uh, with amy and rory 12th doctor monumental jerk then really gets hung up with clara then a mentor father figure to bill you know it's somehow every effort that they try to make to sort of put the Oh, two human 10th doctor in the rearview mirror. I, I feel like they just <laughs> kept coming back because you've just got to have you. It, it's just basic characterization. You've just got to have that in a character. Today's storytelling, I think, demands more characterization. We, we've gotten to the past the point where, you know, just a, a plot and some characters in an interesting situation isn't enough. We've we've had television now for, you know, approaching a century. It, stories have evolved, stories have gotten more complicated, stories have gotten more you need more to keep an audience engrossed. And these days, especially as fandom itself has kind of, you know, asserted itself into the mainstream. If people don't like what happened in an episode, they're just going to turn around and write a fanfic and fix it for themselves. They they have taken ownership of this property in ways that were not the same in the past. So the creators have had to step up their game uh, and and make yeah. things more interesting, more involved, more relatable, more messy, because that's what life is. Yeah. And related to that, audiences are less willing to just sort of glance over things. You know, in the classic series, you could just go... Yeah, okay, she's going to hop into the TARDIS with you and travel with you for the next few months. And there really aren't a lot of consequences to it. You know, Barbara and Ian are very first human companions. When they return home, you know, there's definitely a time that has elapsed, but you don't really get into the consequences of that, at least in the TV show. There are definitely, you know, other materials that delve into it. Um, but in the TV show, they're pretty much, yeah, they're home, they arrived, and that you don't really dig deep into what were the consequences of just vanishing for months. Um, and you know, today's storytelling just doesn't allow that to happen because too many people are going to stop and say, they were gone for six months. What happened? Weren't people scared, worried? What happened to them? And, you know, RTD knew that was a thing and he addressed it straight up in the first series with Rose is gone for a year and everyone thinks she's murdered and there's, you know, acrimony and accusations flying back and forth amongst her family and friends over who's responsible. And 
that's, you know, really a core part. You know, people complain, oh, they've brought the domestics into this. But modern storytelling really demands that. Really, the biggest flaws, I think, with Amy's stories, with Clara's stories in the future is that they don't go enough into those domestics, that these people just sort of up and leave their lives. And we don't get a ton of look now into what happened when they did that. And there's got to be more consequences for those actions than what you see. As we move towards wrapping things up here, I want to dig into what we think are our favorite episodes for the Tenet era. Um, so I'm going to turn to our impartial panelist here, Shannon, <laughs> and ask, what were your favorite episodes of David Tenet's run? You already mentioned School Reunion. That is one of my all-time favorite episodes uh, for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, that it answers the kinds of questions that, you know, fans these days would ask, uh, what, you know, how, what Sarah Jane's life was like and uh, brings it back, shows Rose, you know, this is what could happen later, both in serious discussion and with, you know, flippant you know, remarks. Um, I will never, ever live down Mickey's uh, The Mrs. and the X uh, <laughs> line describing the two of them as they get together. That also has uh, a featured moment of it, that one episode encompasses a lot of range for uh, David Tennant, the actor, to play with the character because he's got um, the investigative what's going on. Something weird is happening that Mickey's called us in to check out. Uh, we have um, his, you know, shock and delight at seeing Sarah Jane again, as well as realizing, you know, as she tells him, you know, this is what my life was like when you were gone. Uh, and we also get that incredible confrontation between him and uh, Mr. Finch, uh, as he points out, you know, I'm not a second chances type anymore. I may wa I may have been once, but not anymore. So that particular episode is always a standout. Um, I also like um, Human Nature in the second series because mm -hmm. he gets the chance, Tennant gets the chance to play a different character uh, in this human version of John Smith, uh, the professor in the private school. Another tour de force for me is Midnight, uh, which I think, uh, you know, a lot of people um, hold that one up in particular as not just for the acting that uh, Tennant and uh, the other rest of the cast are able to pull this off. But a key point, I'm sure it's not the only one, but a key point where the doctor was almost brought low by something that seems at the time it was just an inconsequential decision to go on this little trip and see what happens. And, you know, he was almost ended. Uh, so those in particular stand out. Uh, I am a fan of the Stolen Earth Journey's End because I love big reunions when everybody gets together to... Um, <laughs> To save the, you know, to save the planet, save the galaxy. Um, I, that trips my trigger. I, I like that kind of thing. <laughs> so those are some of mine. Chip? Um, in addition to the ones that Shannon's mentioned, um, I really love Partners in Crime. I yes. really yeah. love yeah. Partners in Crime. If I were an active shipper, I would ship Tin and Rose. But I think the best <laughs> actual pairing of the doctor with a companion is the doctor and donna noble and partners in crime is comedic it's dramatic uh it's got a great story structure and it's it's just it's just fun it's an episode that i would point to to just about anybody and say 
this is what I like in Doctor Who. This is this is this is pure Doctor Who for me. Uh, let's go with it. It's even got cute little fat creatures. Um, <laughs> um, that's that's an important one for me. Um, I'll second Stolen Earth and Journey's End um, because it is like if the end of time is sort of peak Russell T. Davis in terms of content and stakes and melodrama. Stolen Earth Journey's End is sort of peak execution of Russell T. Davis's stuff, with the exception of Sarah Jane Smith having this just happening to have a white point diamond thing that'll blow up all of the Daleks or something just happens to have that on her person. (laughs) With that exception, I love it beginning to end. So I have to second basically everything that you all said. Um, and I, I mean, they're all great and I love them all for the reasons you say, but I'm going to pull up one underappreciated one and that's the runaway bride, uh, mm-hmm. which I think gets a lot of flack partly because it's, it's a little bit oddly positioned in that you have a very light comedy episode um, after mm-hmm. a very sad, dramatic departure. Um, right. And you get a little bit of emotional whiplash moving between the stories, um, especially the way it ends, where you're just ending on this comedy note, and it just feels like, what on earth am I watching here? Mm-hmm. But the episode on its own is really brilliant. And I actually watched it out of order, having not seen any of the second series because of the way a friend of mine introduced me to the show. And on its own, I actually really loved it because there's comedy, but there's also very deep drama and a very good heart to it. You know, I think one mm-hmm. of my favorite scenes of all of David Tennant's era is that moment where Donna has just, you know, realized that her fiance never loved her, never wanted to marry her. It was all a setup and a plot. And she Mm -hmm. and the doctor have just escaped by the skin of their teeth and they're traveling back in time. And the doctor's in full manic mode of, all right, we've got to lead. We're going to go find this. And Donna's breaking down. Like Donna Mm -hmm. is about to full on sob and he slows things down And he shows her the creation of the earth. And it's just such a wonderful, tender scene where the doctor realizes that somebody is in pain and he (laughs) wants to go and try to help that person and make them better. Um, And you see both the doctor and Donna affecting each other, that they're both helping each other through a moment of tremendous grief. Um, And it's it's a really much more of a heartfelt episode than I think people give it credit for. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll throw that up as one of my favorite episodes. There's one element of the David Tennant years that we have neglected as the Tenth Doctor neglected her, and that's Martha Jones. We haven't talked a whole lot about her. You know, it's one of those ones where I love Martha so much as a companion, and I like many pieces of her time there, but I have a hard time wholeheartedly recommending many of her stories. I like Human Nature, The Family of Blood, probably most of all of that season for all the same reasons that Shannon said. Um, And I think Blink is a stupendous episode, but not really a good Martha story. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those that everything that Martha goes through in that season has just an incredible payoff in that final moment with the doctor where she says, you know what? I'm out. I'm going to get a better situation. I'm going to go take care of people. And I'm just getting myself out of a situation that I know isn't good for me. 
but also here's my cell phone and you're at my beck and call now because you know you owe me. Like that's it's it's great. It's brilliant, but she has just such a rough go of it that it's hard looking at any of these episodes and really wholeheartedly saying this is a great Martha episode. I have great moments, but that's yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's um because the doctors because the doctor is still so overwhelmed with um the loss of Rose and that overshadows pretty much the entire season um that affects everything that Martha is trying to do um like you said as looking through you know favorite episodes you know I, I like you said I can look and think of moments in the Shakespeare code that delighted me I can think of moments in the Lazarus experiment where you know once again domestics he, he meets the mom uh things like that that it's moments that stand out more so than full episodes or full arcs in that season. Uh, but, um, you know, Martha herself, I think, you know, was a great, uh, a great choice of character. We, we get to see the unrequited love. She obviously feels affection for the doctor. She obviously sort of gets into him. And then she gradually realizes, as you said, we don't get to see enough of her strength, I think. The fact that she is able to say at the very end, you know, I'm not going to get exactly what I want out of this. So I'm going to go back and you know take this experience and go back and do my own thing. That is not the doctor's best. It is not the doctor's best moment. The 10th doctor's best. Um, not, not even moment. It's not the, his best time. Mm-hmm. Agree with everything that both of you have said about the third season and about Martha, I think that it does the character and the actress a bit of a disservice to have a series long arc about how the doctor deals with having a rebound companion. Um, That's unfortunate. At the same time, I'm ride or die for Smith and Jones. I love that episode. It is. That is a fun episode. And and Martha, Martha is strong in that one. She's uh, she's intrigued by the doctor. But, you know, it's. You, you see her as a future doctor herself, you know, right then and there before you get into the the bulk of the unrequited love story in that season. Plus, the episode has rhino cops. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, actually, thinking back of it, Smith and Jones is really great. I think what colors my perception of it is because they're setting up the unrequited love arc there. Mm-hmm. And I'm just sitting there going, Arr. but it's yeah. actually a really great episode, especially that whole payoff of she's very suspicious about all of this alien nonsense and the time travel. Um, but then he proves it with that moment where he goes back and like, that's like the first moment of the episode and you see them yeah. together. And it's mm-hmm. actually a payoff for a joke all the way at the very end of the episode, which is just a great use of time travel in that story. Yes. Who says um, that Moffat's the only one who does timey-wimey? Exactly. I think if they had kept not. the dynamic they had in Smith and & Jones and, like, did not do the whole rebound constantly missing Rose the entire season, like, moments of it would have been fine. But, like, the whole way through was a bit... Uh. So, I think Smith & Jones was a great dynamic that I wish they'd kept up. Agreed. We're gonna wrap up here with one final question. A little bit of a lightning round. What episode would you recommend from Tenet's era for someone who is brand new to Doctor Who? Oh, why not? New Earth. All right. Cat nuns. I mean, you know, <laughs> you 
you get a conversation between the doctor and Rose that sets up the fact that he is new, that this is somebody she's having to get to know all over again. So you sort of get the concept of regeneration without having seen the regeneration. And yeah, and then you've got cat nuns <laughs> and, uh, and a villain, you know, that returns, uh, with, with Cassandra coming back to cause problems again. And it all just works very beautifully for me. I think it balances, um, you get this really madcap, um, sol- solution to the problem. You know, it's like I can make this nice big giant cocktail of cure all and just spray everybody. Uh, and I, it just works for me. Chip, what about you? I'm going to vote for one that is not one of my favorites, but it's a lot. It is a lot of people's favorites, and it's uh, if if you're into this kind of thing, it's a hell of a gateway drug, and that would be Voyage of the Damned. Uh, <laughs> not where I thought that was going, but all right. What's your reasoning? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. the big budget di- disaster flick genre is not my thing at all. I think we talked about this when we were going through the Christmas specials, but. You've got the doctor at his most doctorish. You've got big stakes in an episode that is easy to understand. It's easy to sort of follow along. Uh, you know, the plot is not challenging at all. Uh, but in the middle of it, you get to see what kind of a person the doctor is and how he goes through life. If you like Voyage of the Damned, and you're brand new to Doctor Who or you're brand new to the 10th Doctor, I think that it's a pretty good litmus test. I'm going to go with probably the most cliche answer, but it's true and I say it all the time. Um, so I'm just going to be consistent here. But Blink. Blink is the episode that my friends <laughs> started me on when they wanted to get me to watch Doctor Who. And it is a very good at giving you the pretty much the whole gist of what this show can be about. And it's one with very minimal David Tennant, but one in which he's used very effectively in the story, um, that the Doctor seems like a character that is a little bit chaotic, a little bit of a trickster, and very much mysterious. You don't really know who he is or what he's doing or anything like that, but he's popped up mysteriously in the middle of a situation that this girl finds herself in, and he's both the cause and the solution to it, that she's sort of trapped in this never-ending circle that he has built uh, in order to survive it? Or is it perhaps something that she has built that he is trapped in? It can go either way. But you really get a sense for what this show can be, that there are these wonderful timey-wimey mechanics. You have the introduction of that phrase, and you have an (laughs) utterly terrifying monster that just scared the living bejesus out of me the first time I watched this. So it's a very effective introduction to Doctor Who as a whole, and even a little bit to what Tennant's Doctor is going to be like, while still leaving him as a kind of mysterious figure overhanging this episode that you never truly get a full grasp on. So you watch this episode, you want to know more. You want to know who he is, why he's got this crazy lifestyle, uh, and how he gets into situations like this. So Blink is my recommendation. You know, my friends Liz Miles and Chris Burgess would certainly probably agree with you. They'd say that minimal tenant is peak tenant. Well, they can be grumpy in the corner. Liz and I will always be able to bond over the third Doctor's era of Doctor Who, but we just have a critical, critical divide here around David Tennant. 
<laughs> Do we have any final thoughts to wrap up our discussion of the 10th Doctor? He is my doctor. Aww. <laughs> Mine too. We'll see, wh- we'll see what happens with Jodie Whittaker. Totally open to the possibility, but at this point, he is my doctor. Aww, you guys are so cute. <laughs> All right. And with that, we are done with our discussion of the 10th Doctor. And we will be back next week to dive deep into the 11th Doctor. We're moving into the uh, Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who. Thanks for joining us on This Week in Time Travel. You can find us on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. I tweet at numeral 2-Minute Time Lord. Alyssa tweets and tumbles at Whovian Feminism, and Shannon tweets at Starfury10. That's the numeral 10. She is also my co-host on The Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Check that out at b5audioguide.com. This podcast is on Facebook as well. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our original theme music and to David J. Lore for our original podcast logo and avatar. For April 10th, this has been This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye.